1: You look at the highest grossing movies so far in 2017. You've got Wonder Woman, you've got Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, you've got Spider Man Homecoming. That's where that uh, song comes from. Hey, Logan's on that list, too. Go back to the previous year, 2016. What did you have? You had uh, Captain America Civil War, you had Batman versus Su- Superman, you had Deadpool, you had Suicide Squad. Uh, so comic books are now big, big money. We're in the realm now of big Hollywood studios and billions of dollars. But still at its core, you've got a, a feud, I guess you call it that, that's been raging for decades. Marvel versus DC, right? The two big brands in the comic book industry now battling out in the movie industry. And, you know, it seems that I remember, you know, buying comic books. I was always more of a Marvel guy. And it seems like a lot of people are into comic books, either a Marvel or a DC guy. I would probably say that I think, you know, when done right, Batman is probably the the best comic book character ever. But I was more drawn to to Marvel, personally. But there does—it's a real rivalry. I get that you're in the same business and you want to beat each other, but there seems to be a real weird kind of animosity (laughs) between the two. And to this day, obviously— Well, it's the subject of a really interesting book. It's called Slugfest, Inside the Epic 50-Year Battle Between Marvel and DC. Uh, Freelance writer Reed Tucker is the author of this book, and he joins us on the phone here this afternoon. Reed, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Hey, Rob. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting story because, you know, this is a big industry that's become even bigger. And these two are really it, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. I I was trying to think of other industries that really only have two players, and the only thing I could come up with off the top of my head was Coke and Pepsi and Cola. So these guys are like the the Coke and Pepsi of spandex. They're it, and they've been it for the last 50-some years.
1: They really have. Now, now D.C., well, they haven't always been called D.C., but D.C. has been around much longer, right?
0: Yeah, D.C., they both actually were founded in the 30s, D.C., uh, in the early 30s, but it was D.C. kind of started the, um, you know, the, at least the American superhero genre of the publication of Superman. Marvel was around back then, but weirdly, Marvel didn't really publish superhero comics for a couple decades, and so D.C.'s superheroes were founded – you know, mostly in the late 30s and the early 40s, whereas Marvel's came along in the early 60s. Spider-Man, the Hulk, the Fantastic Four, you know, all those superheroes we now enjoy in the films. uh, Those are not as old as DC's characters, and so I think Marvel's heroes sometimes reflect a more modern sensibility. I mean, DC heroes are kind of square. I mean, you said it. Batman's really cool, but does anyone really like Superman or (laughs) Wonder Woman or, you know, the other ones?
1: Yeah, and, and I think certainly, you know, we've seen, especially with Wonder Woman in the movie, I mean, a uh, reinvigoration of the franchise, but yeah, uh, with the comic, you know, the history of the comic, the, these weren't really the, you know, the cool, edgy, iconic comic book heroes.
0: No, exactly. And, you know, somebody I spoke to for the book put it really well, which is that in the old days of the DC characters... Mm-hmm. Superman, Wonder Woman, you could take the dialogue from one character and switch it over to another character, and it didn't make a bit of difference, because these were not fully realized characters. They were not like human beings. They were not three-dimensional um, it only came later where DC, through some better writers, tried to make them more three-dimensional, whereas Marvel characters, you know, like Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, those have always seemed like real people who just happen to have superpowers, as opposed to superpowered people who were just trying to be like real people.
1: Right. So it took a while for uh, a true rival to come along. So Marvel arrived in the 60s then, right?
0: That's right. Yeah. Their superhero line was introduced in the early 60s, the fantastic four number one came out in 1961 and then they followed that up with thor and spider-man and the hulk and the avengers and all the ones that we know now
1: was spider-man the real game changer for them
0: in a way it was yeah but i mean it's fantastic four i think was was maybe more of a game changer just because it was the first one that came along and weirdly enough the head of Marvel Comics ordered Stan Lee, who was the writer and editor of, of Marvel at the time, he ordered him to create a new super team to copy DC's super team called the Justice League. So it's funny that Marvel's, all of Marvel's success really derives <laughs> from trying to rip off the competition. I mean, but Marvel just did it in a different way and they did it better. But it's funny that they're, you know, it's, everything starts by them being a copycat.
1: So at what point then did D- D.C. realize that there was a threat here, that this wasn't just uh, another upstart that was going to be crushed under their boot, that they had some real competition on their hands?
0: Yeah, not for a while. It's funny because they were really the blue chip of the industry for a long time, and they did not take the threat from Marvel seriously because Marvel was this nothing little company. They had almost gone out of business a few years earlier. And so it took D.C. a long time, maybe too long, to realize That Marvel really posed the threat. They were doing something different. They were attracting readers who didn't normally read comic books, that is, older readers. And so in the book, there's all these accounts of people I talked to who worked at DC back in the 60s and would talk about the executives just keeping their head in the sand, just saying, well... We don't know why anyone would want to read Marvel comics. They're terrible. And so the D.C. executives actually used to hold meetings in their big conference room in midtown Manhattan. They would put these comic books from Marvel up on the wall, and they would have everyone go around the table, and they'd say, "Okay, what do you think it is about these Marvel comics that are selling so well? And these D.C. executives were completely clueless. Somebody would say, well, they have red on the cover, so maybe kids like red. (laughs) It was just ridiculous. But the one thing they weren't doing that they should have been doing was actually reading the comics. And if they had done that, they would understand that Marvel had a different storytelling sensibility. They had better characters. But they didn't do that. And so it took DC really a long time to realize that they were being beaten and to try to catch up.
1: And Stanley, I mean, you mentioned Stanley. He's the face of Marvel, right? He he shows up in all the Marvel movies. Uh, He's an iconic figure. Yeah. But there there are a lot of other people who were at Marvel and made a huge difference and maybe don't get the same kind of of credit, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. And one of the main ones is Jack Kirby, who is probably considered the greatest illustrator in the comics field, uh, I would think, by most people ever. You know, he had been a journeyman illustrator for a long time. He was the co-creator of Captain America. But it was really when he came to work with Stan Lee in the late 50s and early 60s, and they started to turn out some of these characters like the Fantastic Four and the X-Men and these that he really started to cook. So I, I think he's somebody who really does not get enough credit. And there's a huge debate among comic fans over who did what. Was Stan Lee more responsible for these heroes or was Jack Kirby? And I think the consensus is slowly shifting towards Jack Kirby had a lot more to do with these characters than he's been given credit for over the years.
1: All right, so Marvel comes along in, in the 60s, but jumping ahead to the 80s, because it seemed like the 80s were a real transformative time as you know, comic books got a lot darker, a lot more adults, a lot edgier uh, you know Frank Miller comes along and, and he becomes a, a huge name in, in the comic book lore. Um, w- w- how significant was that decade?
0: Oh, I think it was hugely significant because before the 80s, mostly comic books were considered just disposable trash, mostly read by children, or if you were an adult who read them, you were considered maybe mentally off or, <laughs> or not particularly smart. Um, so it took until the 80s for these a new breed of writers and artists to come along and tell more mature and more sophisticated stories. And you mentioned Frank Miller, and that's right on. I mean, he really changed the perception of Batman with the Dark Knight Returns in the mid-'80s. There was Alan Moore, who was a very very smart, very literary British author. He did Watchmen. He did a a horror series called Swamp Thing that also kind of changed the game. And so from there, in the-'80s, people really started to understand what was possible in the medium. And I think things really grew up from there. And that's part of the reason why you have all these movies today, because back in the 80s, people showed, oh, this is not just kid stuff. You can really do smart storytelling um, with these characters and in these comic books.
1: Did DC have an edge at that point? I mean, certainly you, you talk about, I mean, The Watchmen, obviously, yeah. and then, then The Dark Knight Return. I mean, that, that, that was all DC. Uh, did DC edge ahead of Marvel in that, that period, do you think?
0: They did not, in terms of sales, um, for most months since the early 1970s, Marvel has been beating DC in terms of monthly sales to comic book readers. But what DC did that Marvel did not do really well is try to expand the medium, and that started in the early 80s. Frank Miller did another series about a Japanese samurai who is flung into the future called Ronin. That was also a game changer. But... DC was um, very good at expanding the medium, whereas Marvel was much more content to just stick to their characters and their monthly superhero titles and not really do much outside the box. DC also granted creators um, more control over their own creations, uh, and so that also helped change the game. So they may not have led in sales, but in terms of Uh, you know, really broadening the medium and bringing in probably new readers. I think they did a lot more than Marvel did.
1: So as we go into the the 90s, um, and you had right at the end of the 80s, of course, a hugely successful Batman movie uh, that that really reinvigorated the franchise. Marvel had some struggles in in the 90s, and, you know, they lost Todd McFarlane, some big names like that. Uh, Did did Marvel find itself in some trouble in the 90s? They couldn't really get any of the franchises off the ground in terms of movies, Uh, Where where were they at by then?
0: Yeah, in terms of the movies, Marvel uh, did not have much success, in part because they went through bankruptcy in the mid-90s, and they had sold off a lot of the licenses to their characters to different studios and producers all over town. So. Uh, they had trouble, uh, you know, really building the universe that they're building now. And still to this day, you know, you see Fox control certain superheroes like the X-Men, Universal for a while controlled the Hulk. And so Marvel Studios, you know, their own studio, they only have control over a certain number of their superheroes. Uh, So that for them was a big frustration for a long time. And uh, but they did do a lot of other things. They like launched um, they had a successful cartoon, you know, an X-Men cartoon in the 90s. And they tried to do other things that did not involve big budget uh, superhero films with some of their characters. Do you think I mean,
1: and, and you fast forward to today where, you know, they're both trying to build their cinematic universe that, you know, we, we've got these massive film franchises now. How much of this is a result of the competition? If if Marvel had never got into the movie business, do you think we'd still see these big DC movies and, and vice versa?
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think a lot of it is being driven by the competition, especially the way that they're going about it. I mean, people at Marvel had that idea to launch this connected cinematic universe where all these characters live in the same world, and one story would lead into another. You'd have things like... Nick Fury would show up in several different movies and, you know, seed future movies. And so that is kind of a genius idea because you pay to see one movie and it's basically like an ad for the next seven movies. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, ashamed to say I pay to see them all. Um, but yeah, Kevin Feige, who's the head of the, uh, who's head of Marvel studios basically acknowledged in the book that yeah i mean dc is trying to copy them uh, after marvel had so much success starting with iron man back in 2008 dc a few years came along and said well we're going to try to do the same thing and of course they'd never admit that they're trying to copy marvel but that's basically what they're doing they're copying marvel so they started rolling out they had the superman movie the man of steel uh, directed by Zack snyder then they followed that up with batman versus superman and now they're rolling out movies, uh, you know, solo movies with some of their characters. We just got Wonder Woman last summer. And then in November comes Justice League, which is like their version of the Avengers. You know, all these characters together in sort of one massive super team. And so they're trying to do exactly what Marvel did, only they're just not doing it as well because they don't seem to be as well organized or have as good of a vision for what these characters should be on screen.
1: Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Wasn't it the Suicide Squad director who yelled... F. Marvel.
0: <laughs> yeah, That's right. David Ayer. That's probably not the, what you want to do at premiere of, of your movie right before it gets savaged by critics. But yeah, um, I guess in fairness to him, somebody else in the audience yelled it out and he just echoed it. So I, I give him a little bit of a pass on that. But yeah, that kind of came back to bite him a little bit.
1: But it does underscore that, that it, it's a bitter rivalry.
0: It is, really. And now, um, you know, back in the day, it's funny, if you go back to the comics in the 60s, you would see the fans express themselves. And the only ways the fans could really express themselves was through the letter columns. So they would sit down, take a piece of paper, write their angry letter, put a stamp on it, mail it to Marvel. A month or two later, Marvel would maybe run their letter in the publication of the comics. Now... You know, obviously with the Internet and with social media, the fans are much more vocal and they have much more places to express themselves. And it's really interesting how much this kind of gulf between Marvel and DC fans still exists, especially when it comes to the movies. You can find people online who you know, will record themselves and post a YouTube video just saying why they like DC movies or dissing Marvel movies or the other way around. And so it's really interesting how it's taken hold with this new generation of younger fans who are now split, not necessarily by the comic books, but by the movies.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's quite fascinating. Well, we'll leave it there, Read The book is called Slugfest, Inside the Epic 50-Year Battle Between Marvel and DC. Fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for joining us here. Really appreciate this.
0: Thank you so much, Rob. It was nice talking to you. All right,
1: Take care. Reed Tucker, uh, the book Slugfest. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, that's fascinating to me. There, there's my childhood in a nutshell. And now I guess kind of my adulthood, too, thanks to all the movies. Anyway, 403-974-8255. Back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.